0: Why would anyone deny themselves, take up a cross, and follow a man who said he was going to suffer and die? We do so today because we know that man rose again after death. But the disciples didn't know that when Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They had just come to the realization that Jesus was the Christ. The Messiah of promise, but they still didn't understand the mission of the Messiah. They thought in terms of a political kingdom, of earthly power and glory, and it didn't make sense to them for Jesus to say he would be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of his day, the ones who were anticipating the coming Messiah and be killed. He did add that after three days he would rise again. But that vital piece of information fell on deaf ears. After they heard rejected and killed, they heard no more. You know, bad news does have a way of drowning out good news, as we are all well aware in the midst of a viral pandemic. And bad news seems to grow exponentially before the good news breaks through. It certainly did after Jesus announced that he would be rejected and killed. After Peter rebuked Jesus for even saying such, and Jesus in turn rebuked Peter, he went on to tell the disciples and the multitude that had been following them that if they wanted to come after him, they would have to deny themselves and take up their own cross. He then added that if they were ashamed of him for saying such things, he would be ashamed of them when they came, when He came in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. If they were ashamed of a Messiah who spoke of death and went to a cross, if they turned their back on Him because He didn't meet their expectations, He would turn His back on them when He did come in glory. But how could they know He really would come in glory someday? If He was disappointing them then, How could they be sure they wouldn't be disappointed again in the future? And how can we be certain of a glorious future if Christ doesn't do what we think he should do today and stop this virus in its tracks? Before we try to answer that, let's see how he did it for those who loved him and were following him 2,000 years ago. Jesus knew that they would need proof of the coming glory before they would willingly deny themselves and accept a cross. So he assured them that such proof was coming. We're continuing our study now into the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel. And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death Until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Admittedly, this is a very difficult verse to understand. At first glance, we assume he's talking about the second coming, but he said some standing there wouldn't taste death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power we're reading this 2,000 years after he said it, and obviously none of those who heard him say it are still alive. So either the liberal scholars are right and Jesus was wrong, or he wasn't talking about the second coming here. Now, some suggest Jesus was talking about the day of Pentecost, and indeed the kingdom of God, the church, did come with power on Pentecost. There were visible signs of the Spirit's presence, powerful preaching, and 3,000 were baptized into Christ on that day. That might be what Jesus is talking about here. And certainly all the disciples, except for Judas, were still alive when that happened. There may be, however, an even better way to understand this verse, and it comes by looking at the context, what went before it, and especially what follows it. In the last verse of the previous chapter, Jesus spoke of the time when he would come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the verse that follows, however, we're told of the transfiguration. Now, Scholars aren't sure whether Jesus' statement about some standing there not tasting death until they see the kingdom of God come with power should go with the previous verse or the following verse. When chapter divisions were put in Mark's gospel, the verse was included in chapter 9 with the transfiguration. When Matthew's gospel was divided into chapters, it was left with the previous chapter, that demonstrates the ambivalence that exists in understanding whether this statement refers to the second coming or the transfiguration. Perhaps the best way to decide is to go to a statement made some years later by one who was there when it was said and who witnessed what happened after it was said. In 2 Peter 1:16 through 18, we read, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. When we were with him on the Holy Mountain. There's no doubt that Peter is here talking about the Transfiguration, what he heard and saw on the Holy Mountain. It was there that he became an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ. It was there he saw and heard Jesus receive honor and glory from the Father. It was there that he was given a glimpse of the glory that is to come, a glimpse of glory that helped him to not only understand who Jesus was, but to have confidence in what Jesus said he must do. It was a glimpse of glory that would make Peter more willing to deny himself, take up a cross, and follow Jesus. Let's look at that glory, that glimpse of glory. And see if it won't do the same for us. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Mark is unusually specific in saying that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain six days later. Matthew repeats the six days later, and Luke says some eight days after these saying, including parts of the day before and after the six days in his approximation of time. But all tie the events on the mountain very closely to what had been said shortly before it happened. And the six days may have had special significance in that Moses waited on Sinai six days before God called him from the midst of the cloud and started dictating the law. Even if that is coincidental, the short passage of time seems to tie verses 1 and 2 together. Six days after saying some who were standing there would not taste death until or before, as the NIV translates it, emphasizing the fact that they would indeed see the kingdom of God before, not just until death when most will see it. Six days after saying that some would not taste death, before seeing the kingdom of God come with power, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, Luke says, to pray. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration has traditionally been identified as Mount Tabor, but that is unlikely. Mount Tabor is in the southern part of Galilee, and Jesus and the disciples had just been in Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Mount Tabor isn't a high mountain. It's only 1,800 feet high, and it had a fortress on its summit, so it would be an unlikely place for for prayer and solitude. Most agree now that Jesus led them up a southern spur of Mount Hermon, a very high and rugged mountain system just north of Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that Jesus began praying. Apparently, he prayed for some time because Luke notes that the disciples, as would become their habit, fell asleep. And while praying, Jesus was transfigured. Now the word translated transfigured is the Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis. It means to change from one form to another, like a transformer action figure, or better yet, a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. And obviously, a caterpillar can't turn into a butterfly unless it is actually a butterfly in another form. A common earthworm can never turn into a butterfly. What the transfiguration did was let the disciples see the true nature of Jesus. He had, in a sense, been a butterfly who became a caterpillar while on earth, but would once again be a butterfly after leaving the earth. They were just getting a glimpse of his true nature, and it was something to behold. When the disciples woke up, they saw Jesus in all his power and glory. Mark says his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth and whitened them. Matthew says his garments became white as light and his face shone like the sun. They were seeing the glory Christ had before becoming a man and the glorified Christ as he will appear at the second coming. Elijah and Moses then appeared on the mountain with him. Luke says they also appeared in glory or splendor. And we're talking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah were there, no doubt, because they represented the law and the prophets, both of which anticipated and foretold the coming of the Messiah. They were there to assure Jesus that the course he had determined to follow was indeed the course planned from the beginning of time. Moses may have been sharing how Jesus would be the fulfillment of all those sacrifices which the law demanded, all the lambs and calves and bulls and goats which were killed as a picture of the perfect sacrifice who would take away the sins of the world. Elijah may have mentioned how all the prophecies concerning the Messiah would find their fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Their primary purpose in being there was no doubt for Jesus' sake, but we can be grateful for their joining Jesus on the mountain as well. I think it's significant that Moses and Elijah exemplify the two ways believers enter into glory. Moses entered through the normal, natural process of death. He died. And God buried him in a valley in the land of Moab. His body was lying in some unmarked grave, but yet here he was in recognizable form with a resurrected and glorified body. Elijah, on the other hand, entered heaven in a fiery chariot, having never died and being changed in form as he ascended. And believers will enter heaven In one of those two ways, most will enter through the normal process of death. But those who are alive when Jesus returns will ascend immediately into the air and be changed in form without experiencing death. The promise of eternal life is thereby confirmed by the presence of Moses and Elijah on the mount with our Lord. And the fact that Moses was there after having died takes the fear out of death for believers. It's also interesting to note that the disciples knew who Moses and Elijah were. There's no mention of their being introduced to Peter, James, and John. Chances are they intuitively knew who they were, as we will no doubt intuitively know each other in heaven. There's no need to worry. About being recognized in heaven, or wonder whether we'll appear to be young or old. I'm convinced will not be identified by a physical form, but by our spiritual nature, which will be spiritually discerned by all. God will see to it that we know who's who. However, he works out the details for us, Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah on the mountain with them. Then, according to Luke, when it became evident that they were about to depart, Peter spoke up and said, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He wanted to keep Moses and Elijah on the mountain. He wanted to pitch three tents so they would stay. He missed the point that they were there to simply affirm the identity and mission of Christ. In fact, his view of Christ had apparently diminished in the presence of Moses and Elijah. He called Jesus rabbi or master, not Lord or Christ. God made sure that slight didn't go unnoticed. Immediately, Even while Peter was talking, a cloud formed and enveloped them, and it wasn't a regular cloud. It was the Shekinah presence of God, a bright cloud, a luminous cloud, like the one that had led the children of Israel through the wilderness, the cloud that settled on Sinai when God spoke to Moses and appeared in the temple when God's Spirit entered the Holy of Holies. From the midst of the cloud came a voice saying, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, Matthew says they fell on their faces and were much afraid, but that Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, and did not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone, and Jesus was apparently back to his earthly form, and they had been given a glimpse of his glory. Hopefully now they would be able to accept the path to glory. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Jesus told them to tell no one what they had seen, not even the other disciples, until after the resurrection. They wouldn't really understand it until then. Only then would they understand that Jesus had come from heaven and taken on an earthly form for the purpose of dying. Only after the resurrection would they understand that the Messiah had come to conquer death so his kingdom could be eternal. Only then, after the resurrection, and as they would see him ascend back into heaven, would they understand the glimpse of glory they had witnessed on the mountain. So for now, they were to tell no one about it. I'm sure that was fine with them because they wouldn't have known what to say anyway. In fact, they were still confused by this talk about rising from the dead. What what could that mean? They still didn't understand that Jesus would have to die and they were still expecting a glorious kingdom to be inaugurated by Elijah as the scribes had taught them. Jesus said they were right to expect Elijah to come, but they hadn't taken into account the kind of reception he would receive. In fact, he had already come in the form of John the Baptist, and they knew what happened to him. Likewise, the Son of Man would be rejected and killed. That, too, had been prophesied even though few seemed to read those passages. The disciples still had much to learn about the true nature of the kingdom of God, and they wouldn't understand it fully until after the resurrection. They were beginning to understand, but it wouldn't be until after the resurrection that they would understand that the path to glory included a cross. Only then would they be willing to deny self, Take up a cross and follow him. Only then would they understand how the crucified and then glorified Christ could wash them and make them cleaner than any launderer on earth. Thankfully, we live on the other side of the resurrection, and we therefore understand why Jesus had to die and how by coming to the cross, we too, can be made whiter than snow. We've been given more than just a glimpse of glory. We've been made more than eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've been given the privilege of inviting the resurrected and ascended Christ into our hearts and lives. And he has promised to come if we will allow him to wash us and make us clean Christian baptism. And it is through immersion into Christ that we are washed clean, not by water, but through express faith in the blood of the Lamb who takes away our sin. If you've not confessed your faith in Him and been baptized into Him, I urge you to do so as soon as arrangements. Can be made. As you are well aware, due, the, due to the uh, coronavirus, it's not safe for us to currently meet together. And I trust you long for the time when we will once again be able to return to the mountain to share personally our experiences with the resurrected Christ. Until then, Let's do what we can to share the hope and confidence we have in our resurrected Lord. His path to glory included a time of suffering and death. Through His grace, I pray that our current suffering will be short-lived and minimal, and that death from a virus that is wreaking havoc around the world might be avoided. But today, we celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into a city where death awaited him. And we know how that ended. It ended with him rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and promising that one day we too will be transfigured into his likeness. Until then, we walk together on the path to glory. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we come before you with confidence. We know what Jesus experienced. We know of his suffering and his death and his victory over death. We know of his promise to welcome us into his kingdom and that someday these bodies of ours will be transformed. If not through death, suddenly at the appearance of Christ, however you do it for us personally, someday we're going to be changed into the image and likeness of our Savior. That takes the fear out of death that encourages us when we're facing difficult times and perhaps even some are suffering. I'm so grateful that I'm aware of no undue suffering taking place within our church family. But around the world, believers are suffering. I'm so grateful for the way you've blessed our nation and prepared us to handle what's happening. You've given us grace that's abundant to the challenge. I pray we'll never lose sight of that. Help us stay steadfast. Help us to stay focused on the glory that's ours. Let's stay on the path. Let's trust you completely. And let's walk together, even though we're apart physically. That's my prayer in Christ's name.